Good afternoon, Dr. Danguera here. Today is the 25th of February, 2022. It is, of course, a Friday, and so we are going to have a very enjoyable lecture. And I'm going to continue my discussion of diabetes. This is, of course, authentic biochemistry. And as I said, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra. I didn't say that, I said it now. Last time we were discussing a paper published in prostaglandins and other lipid mediators, which will come out in April of this year. We're talking about cyclooxygenase and the fact that, of course, metabolizes multiple very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. And I mentioned to you there were two forms of COX or cyclooxygenase. Um, right now, what I want to point out is that arachidonic acid can be metabolized by COX to PGH2. This is something I talked about just last lecture. But then there are other reactions which will generate a host of other eicosanoids, also known as prostanoids. These include PGE2, prostacycline, PGF2-alpha, and PGD2, as well as the thromboxanes, including TXA2. And the enzymes that are going to be synthesizing these multiple eicosanoid products will come from either prostaglandin or thromboxane synthases. I told you that in the kidney, COX-2, that's the isoform of that enzyme, is an inducible. And it likely plays a very significant role in the prostanoids that are necessary for the kidney to function. However, when COX-2 is over-induced, and even if it becomes constitutive, such as in diabetic nephropathy, what you end up generating are cytotoxic prostanoids. Okay, so this is a very important point here about eicosanoids, which I will um, allow you to understand. Eicosanoids are oxygenated fatty acids. So that means that they are prone to further oxidation and also that they are in their own right signaling molecules, typically only in the autocoid or paracrine level of significance. So these are not endocrine hormones. They don't make it through multiple circulations. So they function either on the cell they're generated from, and yet they do need to bind to a receptor, uh, or so they can be secreted and then bind back to the receptor in the plasma membrane, or they work in paracrine fashion which means they work near, on nearby or adjacent cells after their synthesis. So in the kidney, uh, the pathological state of diabetic nephropathy has been associated with high levels of inducible COX-2. And the PGE2 is the most abundant prostanoid generated. Of the four PGE2 receptors, I mentioned last time that the EP4 receptor is found expressed in the glomerulus of the kidney, and it is directly associated with stimulatory G-protein-coupled receptors, which means it's going to signal through, because it's a GS type of system, the cyclic AMP pathway, 
Okay, so this that means that it will activate after induction uh, adenylate cyclase. So you'll increase the amount of cyclic AMP. And this appears to be directly associated with the nephropathy. Um, it's been shown that if you inhibit COX-2, you decrease the pathogenesis that is recognized associated with diabetic nephropathy. But what's really going on in terms of the biochemistry hasn't really been worked out until very recently. In fact, this paper is going to tell us something about that. Okay. So a single nucleus RNA sequencing study was used in a human diabetic nephropathy cell line. And it was demonstrated that there are actually multiple cell types that show an angiogenic pathophysiology. And this angiogenesis actually is what is associated or supports the aberrant glomerular angiogenesis, and that is a key feature of the prodromal phases of DN, of diabetic nephropathy. So we talked a lot about angiogenesis in the past in this lecture series over the last several years, um, but in this particular case, I want you to understand that there is a um, countervalence of proangiogenic and anti-angiogenic proteins. And these proteins are then associated often with lipids. And the vascular maturation factor angiopoietin 1, that's ANG1 or ANG1, seems to be the one that's key for maintaining renal capillary function. So any alteration expression of a pro-angiogenic or indeed even an alteration in the anti-angiogenic factor might likely cause some kind of pathology since you need a very tight control over those two possible pathways, right? And in fact, when you lose that control over the pro and anti-angiogenic factor um, expression, that's when you get diabetic kidney disease. So the evidence suggests, going back to the uh, prostanoid binding to its receptor EP4, that EP4 is indeed the important factor for regulating angiogenesis. So that means you have to have COX-2 generating PGE2 binding to EP4 and then regulating angiogenesis. So when you knock down using siRNA, or you use antagonists uh, to the EP4 receptor, what you get is a suppressed cell migration and a tubal formation of the umbilical vein endothelial cells. And that occurs because you're inhibiting PKA or pro-angiogenic receptors like KDR and TI2. So when you look at tumor models, so this is a little bit off key from the nephropathy, but it, and nephropathy can lead to tumors in the cancer, in the kidney. When you look at tumor models and you look for vascularization and angiogenesis, it's often the case that the endothelial cell EP4 prostaglandin receptor 
and <laughs> any kind of uh, high level expression of that receptor has been associated with the vascularization angiogenesis of tumors. And in fact, if you knock out or diminish the amount of EP4 receptor, you're going to get a decrease in that pathway. So the idea is to look at nephropathy then from the point of view of these diabetic mice, right? So these are diabetic mice and they also have this diabetic phenotype of nephropathy. And what they're trying to look at is when you, when you deliver a COX inhibitor and or an EP4 antagonist, and you're looking at diabetic kidneys and angiogenesis, what occurs for some of the fundamentals associated with diabetes? You know what those are. Levels of circulating, fasting glucose, the hypertension phenomenon associated with metabolic syndrome, and the corruption of renal filtration. So they're looking at that, and they're also, you know, basically making sure that they cover glycemic and hemodynamic influences, okay? So they have to bracket that off to be able to look very specifically at the COX-2 inhibitor and EP4 antagonist for multiple reasons. Obviously, if you're, if you're altering also the bioenergetic pathways and you're committing to cell cycle arrest or cell cycle progression or to some kind of program cell death fate, then that's going to um, cloud what the COX-2, PGE2, EP4 system is doing in the nephropathy. So they have to cover off those systems. And they do that by essentially, essentially by controlling against any kind of exacerbation of the diabetes. Okay. Now, I want you to um, think about this angiogenesis from a different point of view. I'm going to take you back to a paper that was published in 2013 in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. And I'm going to remind you of some other cancers. These would be the gliomas. Gliomas, of course, are the most common type of central nervous system tumor. And they tend to happen more in adult humans. And just like any tumors, you can grade them according to severity from uh, one to four. So there are four grades in this malignancy. Remember that we call it, we, the major type of glioma is a glioblastoma megaforma or GBM. And it is the most common form of the gliomas. And it actually accounts for between 12 and 15% of any intracranial tumors that have been resected or examined upon autopsy. So that means that about 10,000 new clinical diagnoses of GBM, glioblastoma megaform 2, so GBM 2, 10,000 new cases per year in the United States. Now, this was back in 2013, I can tell you that number has not changed much. It's gone up a little, but not too much. Now, again, surgical resection is typically the way to go after this because chemotherapeutics don't work well in the central nervous system for obvious reasons. Basically, the corruption of the uh, entire neural trafficking pathways and, of course, microglia. So <laughs> what you do is you do surgical resection and then you do radiotherapy, right? There are some DNA alkylating agents that have been thrown at 
glioblastoma, and one of them is called temozolomide. But the median survival when you carry out that particular set of therapies, that's resection, radiotherapy, and then alkylating agent, um, survival is only about a year, okay? And if you're looking at out at five years, uh, if you want to look at these, look what happens to these um, patients after five years, less than 10% of them are still alive. So there's an anti-angiogenic drug known as bevacizumab, also known as Avastin. And basically it's a monoclonal antibody to a very potent hormone called the VEGF, okay? And so Avastin is a monoclonal antibody that binds to VEGF. And it's been used for glioblastoma because VEGF is going to do what? It's going to induce angiogenesis. You don't want angiogenesis in a brain tumor, okay? So Bevacizumab actually has been shown to improve what's known as progression-free survival or PFS in glioblastoma. And in fact, it's associated with a reduction in the requirement for using steroids, which is always good. But unfortunately, although it improves progression-free survival, it doesn't really do anything to improve overall survival. You still run into that 12 to 15 months mortality. And by five, by five years, basically less than 10% of these people are still alive. So... There have been a lot of other pharmacotherapies that have been looked at, basically trying to figure out ways to drug the expression of certain oncogenes. And you can guess which ones they would be, the ones controlling cell cycle, right? And what so what they're trying to do is examine these proteins, which ones turn over. And at the same time, people look at lipid metabolism because it's well known that dyslipidemia is at the metabolic level just as significant as alteration of proteins due to mutation, epimutation, or epigenetic phenomena. So we've talked about these in the past, and I, I say that often, but I do it so that you could remind you to go back and listen to other lectures. They're all um, named pretty well, so you could find these as keywords. But sphingolipids, of course, are very significant lipids that you find associated with pathophysiological responses. There you go. And of course, this is primarily looking at any kind of mammalian model, but the human model fits this quite uh, nicely. So sphingolipid metabolism in human cancers, in human uh, diseases in general, are a major contributing factor for those pathophysiological systems. Of course, we talked about ceramide. That's a major sphingolipid. Um, and remember that ceramide can have various kinds of covalent modifications. And these include basically adding what could be called head groups. This is the term we use in phospholipid synthesis. So we use it also in sphingolipids. And this gives you quite a family of what are known as glycero or glyco sphingolipids. And we've talked about these things. We've talked about cerebrosides, for example, which are very common in CNS, right? So ceramide itself, though, which is basically precursor 
to glycosphingolipids and also to sphingosine 1-phosphate, <clears throat> serum by itself is very significant because it controls programmed cell death. And what programmed cell death can be induced by things like chemotherapy, radiotherapy. Um, there are different kinds of programmed cell death. What you want is uh, a programmed cell death that follows the canonical pathway so that you don't induce an inflammatory response. So for this kind of PCD, you're talking about sensus-strictive apoptosis, you know, the mitochondrial canonical pathway using caspases and cytochrome C. Now, there's another um, offshoot of programmed cell death that basically has been termed lethal autophagy. And lethal autophagy is also known as pro-apoptotic tumor necrosis factor pathway, okay? So lethal autophagy leads to apoptosis using TNF as its major source of pro-inflammatory cytokine. So you get pro-death functions of ceramide being mediated through directing a binding to various protein targets. And those include tumor suppressor phosphatase PP2A, and a kinase suppressor of RAS oncoprotein, as well as one more, the autophagy protein called LC3B2. So ceramides obviously are very significant because they're interacting with all of these proteins that tend to function as tumor suppressors. So they play an essential role in neural stem cell differentiation another key factor that we know, that's why we know these are biologically active lipids. And this, of course, is mediated by direct binding to another kinase, that's PKC, protein kinase C. So ceramides bind directly to um, enzymes, either phosphatases or kinases. Um, and so this is a very key feature of uh, lipid modification of proteins that can alter cell fate, particularly interesting from the point of view of diseases that are linked to oncogenesis, right? So ceramide, of course, we talked about this many times, is metabolically under a lot of dynamics. It can be metabolized by ceraminidases. And when it does that, when ceraminidases function, you're removing that amide linkage and you produce what's known as sphingosine free base. That's going to be a monoacylipid because only that fatty acid in the sphingosine base is associated with it. Now you can phosphorylate sphingosine by an enzyme called SPKH, uh, excuse me, SPHK1, and that is sphingosine kinase 1. But there's another isoform of that enzyme that is a sphingosine kinase. It's called SPK2. So either one of them will give you sphingosine 1-phosphate. Now, we talked a lot about these different kinases and the different kinds of sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors that are associated with their contrarian and sometimes contradictory activity against the ceramides. So simply by removing one of the fatty acids, that amide-linked fatty acid of ceramide, and then phosphorylating the sphingosine base, to sphingosine 1-phosphate via 
various sphingosine kinases will yield the opposing effect of a ceramide. So all that program cell death that ceramide is involved in can be completely diminished if you generate from a ceramide pool sphingosine 1-phosphate. can be diminished and it can actually go in the other direction. So uh, I mentioned this many times before, but once you make sphingosine 1-phosphate, of course, it itself works at very low concentrations, as the ceramides. We're down to the nanomolar level of high bi biological activity. And S1P, sphingosine 1-phosphate, works through any one of five different G-protein couple receptors. And these are called sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors 1 through 5, of course. So sphingosine 1-phosphate signaling through receptors 1, 2, and 3 promote glioblastoma cell invasiveness. And this is mediated through an SK1-dependent upregulation of the urokinase plasminogen activator as well as its receptor and another pro-invasive secreted molecule known as CCN1. Now, a caveat to this, S1-phosphate, now we're back to sphingosine-1-phosphate, will also bind and modify the activity of intracellular proteins like, and we've talked about this, histone deacetylases, also known as sirtuins, right? So sphingosine-1-phosphate will alter the activity of histone deacetylases. And when you... Um, the acetylate histones, you, of course, are going to change expression of genes, right? Because it's involved in chromatin remodeling and the histone code. So the capacity for rapid enzymatic interconversion of ceramide to sphingosine 1-phosphate and back again, it gives uh, rise to something called the sphingolipid rheostat hypothesis. And this basically says there's a balance between the pro-differentiative, pro-apoptotic ceramide and the pro-proliferative, pro-survival sphingosine-1-phosphate. So I told you these are contrarian and in some uh, axes actually contradictory in terms of their function for cell fate, which of course is always significant in cancer. So... There's a great deal of literature on this, on sphingosine kinases and direct, essentially, cellular transformation, cancer progression, and metastasis. So obviously, the pharmaceutical industry is very interested in abrogating the activity of sphingosine kinases, right? Or maybe altering ceraminidase activity. So going back to sphingosine kinase 1, when we look at its overexpression, what you get as a result is an oncogenic transformation of normal fibroblastin culture, but an absence of sphingosine-1 kinase, when you're looking at it as a knockout in mice, will protect against the development of colon adenomas. So clearly, this is an oncogenic transformation event, right? Because if you uh, don't have sphingosine-1 kinase and you try to induce colon adenoma in a mouse model, 
you don't develop it. On the other hand, when you're looking at cells in culture, like normal fibroblasts, you can turn them, you, you can do an oncogenic transformation of those normal fibroblasts, either in cell culture or in vivo, simply by overexpressing the sphingosine kinase 1. So that means the upregulation of sphingosine kinase 1 is obviously vital and significant, and we see it in multiple types of tumors, the major tumors that cause death in humans breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, and glioblastoma. All of them show a heightened activity of sphingosine kinase 1, both at the level of transcription, translation, and, of course, enzyme activity. We know this because we see increases, upticks in sphingosine 1-phosphate. So all of this leads to what could be called a very poor um, outcome for glioblastoma patients. And in glioblastoma patients, sometimes uh, also we see the, a very similar event in breast cancer patients and in lung cancer patients. So obviously, this is an enzyme that's of very significant import to the uh, pharmacotherapeutic industry. And that's what we're going to continue to talk about. So remember in de novo synthesis, you have uh, ceramide production, and the ceramide can be used to make sphingomyelin by adding phosphonylcholine. That's one of those polar head groups. Sphingomyelin, of course, is generating then the myelin sheath for certain myelinated neurons, exons, right? Now, you can synthesize sphingomyelin, but you can also you have sphingomyelinase activity, which we've also talked about, the acid sphingomyelinases and the neutral sphingomyelinases, recall. And when you have sphingomyelinase activity on uh, preformed sphingomyelin, you resynthesize ceramide, okay? And the ceramide synthases, actually, there are six different isoforms of those enzymes. And we have talked about that very recently. Why are there six different isoforms? Because those add six different types of molecular species of fatty acid to that amide-linked uh, uh, nitrogen atom, which is the component of ceramide. Okay, and I talked about polyunsaturated, very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids being added there, of the omega-6 or omega-3 type, but also what? Oleic acid or steric acid or palmitic acid. Remember how those feed into oncogenic events. Now, ceramide can also be acted upon by ceraminidases, as we said, and these ceraminidases will produce free sphingosine, and then sphingosine when it's acted upon by sphingosine kinases 1 or 2, will make sphingosine 1-phosphate. And there's a uh, sphingosine phospholipase, uh, which will actually then remove sphingosine 1-phosphate completely from activity because it will make hexadecenol and ethanolamine phosphate. That completely removes sphingosine 1-phosphate. There is no return to sphingosine after you go through that reaction. Now, Ceramide also can be used, we talked about this, to make these glycosyl sphingolipids, such as hexacyl ceramide. Hexacyl ceramide is kind of an intermediate to make the sulfatides, and then also in another pathway, all the complex glycolipids, including cerebrosides. Okay. So the enzymes that control the balance between ceramide and sphingosine-1-phosphate, I've just now mentioned to you. So the entry into those pathways include de novo synthesis and then all of this retailoring around the ceramide 
molecular nucleus, okay? And what you find when you look at glioblastoma versus, now that would be like the ultimate stage four of, a, of that glioma. And you compare it to earlier stages of that same glioma. And those would be called stage two and stage three, with stage four being full-blown glioblastoma. You see an alteration in the levels of sphingomyelin and hexacylceramide, sulfatide, ceramide, sphingosine, and sphingosine 1-phosphate. So for the hexacylceramide, you see lower levels in as you progress to the, to the stages of three to glioblastoma uh, megaforma, that is stage four. So you see a decrease in hexacylceramides from a standard concentration of, say, sphingomyelin, which doesn't change between stage two, three, to four. If you look at sulfatide, it's similar to the hexacylceramides. Remember the pathway. That's the pathway coming from ceramide going to these complex lipids. With, ser with, with the sulfatide, you also see a decrease in sulfatide as you move from stage two to GBM. What about ceramide? Ceramide also decreases as you go from stage two, stage three to GBM. That's the full-blown stage four glioblastoma, right? What about sphingosine? The opposite. Sphingosine is lower in stage two. It gets a little bit higher in stage three, and then it's much more robustly um, found in glioblastoma, okay? And sphingosine 1-phosphate follows this much, even to a much more significant degree. In stage two, you already have a significant